We are going to expand on a conversation that we saw in the Mishnah a couple of the Pima ago uh, regarding when a husband says, go in, uh, to a messenger, here, take this get to my wife or uh, to his slave. So he can retract in both cases according to the Bimeir. Chachamim, however, disagree and say he can retract for a get nashim, but not for shichur avadim. The difference is, Chachamim say, is that uh, for a slave, it's always better for a slave to be free. And therefore that we apply the rules, um, uh, because uh, we, uh, the messenger can accept the get, on behalf of the slave. However, for a wife, it's not always better for a wife to be divorced. Um, after all, she is getting guaranteed sustenance from her husband. And so um, he cannot, the messenger cannot receive it on behalf of the wife, and therefore the husband can retract. Rabbi Meir counters that, hold on, even for a slave, there is a detriment to him in that he, if he's, if the master is a Kohen, and uh, once he becomes free, he can no longer eat Tirumah, and maybe he likes eating Tirumah, and he would rather be a slave and eat Tirumah than be free and not be able to eat Tirumah. So that's not necessarily Zachin Ladav, maybe it's a Chavin law. And Chachamim uh, answer, no, this is different. The slave is the uh, property of the master, um, and that's the only reason that he can eat Terumah, uh, but the master does not have to give him Terumah, the master can give him nothing. So really, this is not quite a, um, a, legit, a, a legal right. There's no right to give food at all. So yes, if he gives food, then he can give him terumah, but he can give no food at all. And therefore, Chachamim say, it's always better for a slave to be free. So we're going to um, quote now a longer version of this um, conversation in Ebraita that's also found in the Tosefta. Tanya. So Rabbi Elazar here is uh, speaking for Chachamim, so um, that Chachamim is Rabbi uh, Elazar part of Chachamim, uh, who say that you they make, make who makes a distinction uh, between the two, and uh, he says to Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Elazar says it's always a benefit, a benefit to a slave to be free from his master, and therefore the master once he gives it. The messenger receives it on behalf of the slave and he goes free and the master cannot retract. Amar lanu. And Narbi Lazar is quoting Rabbi Meir who responded back. If the slave was a slave of a master Kohen, then while he's a slave, he can eat Tirumah. Now he can no longer eat Tirumah. So we, then we said, Amar Nulor, Rabbi Elazar said, Hold on, but a master doesn't have to give the slave any food at all. And therefore, it's, it's always going to be better for the slave to be free because while the master, usually most masters uh, do feed their slaves uh, just to keep them alive and working, um, but there's no legal obligation, and there's, therefore the slave has no uh, self-interest in uh, remaining, a ma- remaining a slave. He, there's no guaranteed legal benefit for him. And Bimeir counters with a very important point, and he said, even if a slave 
would run away from his master, a slave of a Kohen. He could still eat Terumah. When we say that a slave of a Kohen can eat Terumah, it's not only the Terumah that belongs to the master, he can go and find another Kohen, someone else, who is, uh, who is giving, who has Terumah, and any farmer who's going to give Terumah, he gives it to some Kohen, and that Kohen can share it with this slave. The slave is permitted to eat Terumah. The slave can also buy Terumah, which is a good deal, because Terumah is, since it has a limited um, a customer base, so it's generally cheaper than other food. So uh, an Eved, he goes and he, he's able to uh, get some money, earn some money. He can go and buy food more cheaply from the store. So even if the master is not providing any food for him and he runs away, he could still have benefit from uh, being the slave of a Kohen and thereby being, a to, a, being able to eat Terumah. The same thing happens to be true with a wife of a Kohen who rebels against her husband. She is not serving her um, uh, uh, conjugal duties, uh, other duties uh, that a wife is supposed to do. Nevertheless, even uh, um, if the uh, she is not fulfilling her roles, as long as they are married, she also can eat Terumah. We're just bringing the parallelism here because um, Rabbi Meir does equate both of them and say in both cases um, it's better for um, in both cases the husband can retract because there's a detriment. What's the detriment in both cases both for a wife and for a slave it's the same detriment as long as they are married or are a slave they can eat terumah and even if the relationship is uh, not on par and they're not living together and the slave ran away, nevertheless, he can, she can eat still, they can eat, still eat teruma. And that's why um, a person would, may prefer to be a slave and a wife may prefer to remain married. And so we don't say it's zachin law, right? Whereas if once he gets a, um, once he's freed, the slave, then he can no longer eat teruma. So to be made as a Powerful point here. This line has to be read as the Chachamim now responding and says, no, no, but it's different for a slave and a, and a wife. For a wife, it's definitely, um, it can be detrimental for her uh, to, um, to be divorced because not only does she no longer eat Teruma, also she loses out her guaranteed sustenance. And so that's why it could be a, a wife may, may um, want to remain married, and that's why um, the, mer- the uh, messenger cannot receive it on her behalf. But that's different from a slave where he does not lose mezonot. Okay, but you see that it doesn't answer the uh, the point about teruma. Okay, that's the end of the Braita. Now Gemara is going to expand on the Braita, which expands on the Mishnah. What did the rabbi say to Bimeir, and what did he respond? Bimeir says to them, okay, you gave me an answer regarding sustenance. You're right, you have a good point there, that a husband is required to give sustenance to his wife and therefore it's a detriment to her to be divorced whereas um, a master does not have to give sustenance to a slave and therefore there's no judgment there but i i told you already that what about but then i told you what about teruma that is a detriment both to a slave and to a wife and you didn't answer that question le 
And if you, Chachamim, say that the messenger accepting the document is and does not a detriment to the slave because, after all, the master can at any point just go and throw a, a, a document of a, a get, a shichur avadim, to the uh, slave, and he will uh, discard him and uh, make him uh, ineligible to itirumah. In other words, the right of the slave to itirumah is not guaranteed, um, just like the just, just like the um, food is not guaranteed. Um, a, a master can feed his slave, and he wants to, he doesn't have to. So, uh, so also, the master can allow him to eat teruma, and at any point the master can go and throw a get near him and then he won't be able to eat teruma. So neither of those rights are guaranteed and therefore it would be better for the slave to just go to, to, be, uh, to be free. Um, but I'll answer to that, Rabbi Meir says, wait, a messenger, uh, a slave does have a way to guarantee that he can continuing to eat, continue to eat Tirumah by um, escaping and running away to somewhere else in the world. You see, the, the master, he, in order to free the slave, has to actually hand over the get to him or near him, right, in some way. If the slave runs away and you can't find him, then he can keep his right to eat Tirumah wherever he is. And so it is, in fact, a kind of a guaranteed right, to be made, it says. Um, and further, to be made, it adds, And what would be the case of a slave of a Kohen who runs away, or indeed the wife of a Kohen who um, rebels against her husband, they continue eat to eat to Ruma. So now you see we filled in some, uh, some language there to explain why is Bimeir talking about the slave that runs away? Oh, because he is responding to a potential answer of Chachamim. Chachamim could say, wait, the bite of Tiruma is not guaranteed. The master can always just throw a get towards him and make him uh, no longer a slave. And so Bimeir says, no, the slave can run away and that way guarantee his right to eat Tiruma. Just like a wife will always be able to eat Tiruma as long as they're married. Um, whereas a slave who is freed cannot eat Tiruma and therefore the slave could go to the messenger and say, will you accept it on my behalf? I never wanted to be free. I want to eat tirumah. And I, I can guarantee that I always eat tirumah. I can't guarantee that my master will always give me food. He doesn't have a legal right to do that. But I have a guaranteed legal right to eat tirumah always. So now, Gemara says, Shapir Kamalehudabimir has a good good point, right? I mean, you know, if you can always buy, you have a, a permanent right to buy food at a cheaper price. So that sounds like a, a good um, thing that people, maybe they would rather be a slave and be able to have Terumah. So Rava says, oh, that's what, that's the next line in the Mishnah. That's what, exactly what the rabbis are addressing. And the Mishnah says this language because the slave is the um, uh, acquisition of the master. If the master wants to, even if the slave runs away, the master has an easy way to stop him from eating terumah. The master can just go and uh, go to any a Yisrael, a non-Kohen, and say, hey, give me, give me four dinar, a cheap amount. Give me four dinar, I'll sell you my slave. That the master is right. He can sell the slave anytime he wants. 
And then at that point, right, and immediately the slave will no longer be a slave of a Kohen, he'll be a slave of Israel, and he cannot eat Terumah, even if he's on the other side of the world and we can't find him, to, in order to give him a, um, a get, Shichrur Avadim. And so Chachamim say, indeed, the, the, the uh, slave has no guaranteed right to eat Terumah, just like he has no guaranteed right to eat, to, um, to have food. The master can take, cannot give him food, and the master can sell him for a cheap price to Israel. And therefore, there is no legally guaranteed benefit for the slave to remain a slave. And that's why, according to Chamim, any slave would rather go free. Whereas a wife does have a guaranteed legal obligation from the, from the husband to feed her, and she can always eat Tirumah. The husband can't you know, can't pass her off to another man who's not a Kohen. And so that is a, that's an important distinction. So now a, a question to the Bimeir. Your uh, argument makes sense if it's an Eved of um, a Kohen, uh, of a master who's a Kohen. Then there's a benefit for him to him remaining a, uh, a slave. But what if he is a slave to Israel? Then what would you say? What benefit is there? Oh, even in that case, there is a detriment to the to the slave, um, which is well, while he's a slave, he can have relations with a shivcha kenaanit, um, where and he's not allowed to have. Uh, they're talking about an eved kenaani, so he was a, a, a kenaani. He becomes an eved. That's like a semi conversion. He has to keep misvot like a woman does. And while he's a Evid Kenani, he can um, have relations and have children with a Shifcha Kenanit. When he becomes free, then he can no longer be with the Evid Kenani. Now he can be with a uh, with a free woman, a Jewish woman. He becomes a full convert. Um, whereas, so there's a switch, right? When he's Evid Kenani, then he can be with a Shifcha Kenanit, but he cannot be with a Jewish woman. When he's free, then he can be with a Jewish woman, but he can no longer be with a Shifcha Kenanit. And so here's a detriment. Now he becomes free. He could say, wait, I don't want to be free. I want to continue um, uh, be, being with my, this uh, Shifcha Kenanit that my master gave to me. And we as we answer, wait, wait a second, by getting, by getting his freedom, now he gets a new benefit. He can marry a free woman. Isn't that better that he can go and marry a free woman, um, free full Jewish woman, and the answer is no, even though it's true, it's higher status uh, to go and marry a free uh, Jewish woman, um, but there is a, um, a physical benefit to being with a shifcha kena'anit, uh, which is that um, she's like hefked, he, he can look, uh, he can treat her in a lowly fashion, um, she is, uh, she is uh, cheap, to, he is, she is cheap to him, she is around all the time um, because she's a servant there and she is unrestricted and so um, uh, the slave might say, no, no, I'd, I'd rather stay here with the shifcha kanani um, I could fulfill my uh, desires better this way than going and marrying a high-class woman, and then um, I won't be able to do that. Okay, and so that's the um, that's all to be made saying. That's why um, even if it's not the teruma issue, if it's evid of Israel, still um, someone uh, evid might say, "I'd rather be I'd rather be uh, uh, evid." 
and in my current situation with the Shifra Kena'anit, and that's why according to the Bimeir, um, the messenger cannot receive the um, get Shichrir Avadim on behalf of the slave. All right, next Mishnah Omer Tenu get Zel Ishti, Shta Shichrur Zel Avdi, Umet, Loi Tenu Lachar Mitam. Someone, we're going to talk about what case is. Is he sick? Is he healthy? Anyway, someone, a master says, or a husband says, give this get to my wife. There's a get there, right? He, they, they wrote it. He tells a messenger, go and give it to my wife. Or he tells a messenger, go and give this to my slave and then he dies the messenger should not go through with the with the messengership um, after he dies the reason is clear um, if it's a husband so the second he dies they're no longer married and so it makes no sense you can't be divorced after death um, and uh, it, they're not divorced until he hands it till the messenger hands it to the wife so there's no uh, uh, there's no point in giving it to him after and if he's a master well the master can free his slave but if once he dies he no longer owns the slave then it goes to an inheritor to his inheritors and then the inheritors have to decide uh, if they want to free him or don't want to free him but the uh, the, the, the this uh, document can no longer be used Okay, now, this is in uh, contrast to uh, someone who says, give this hundred dinar to that guy, and then he dies, they'd still give it, the messenger should still go and give it even after he dies. So for when it comes to money, that's different from giving either of these two types of documents, and the Gemara will explain why. So Rav says the following statement, It's a qualification on the last law when we said that someone who said, give um, this money to that person and then he dies, that you still give it. That's only if the money is piled up and placed in the corner. It doesn't have to be in the corner, it could be on the table. The point is that it's a specified money, a specified um, uh, uh, coins that are someplace, those particular ones, not in general, just give, you know, find a, find a hundred dinar and give it to him, but a specific dinar that's set as, uh, a hundred dinarim that are set aside to give him. Now, now this statement of Rav, what is, how is he understanding the Mishnah? What type of case? If he was healthy when he said, give the hundred dinar to so-and-so, and then he just all of a sudden died as a, died of a heart attack or, or uh, you know, fell off a cliff or something. Um, then, uh, so how does it help that they're piled up? The other guy did not, the, or the messenger did not uh, take the money. Um, and you need an acquisition. You need an active acquisition in order to get money, right? You can't just by saying it orally. Here, this is yours. It's not yours until you or someone on your behalf actually takes it for you. So um, it being a, a piled in the corner is not going to help. So maybe it's not a healthy person, but someone on his deathbed. And there's a special law of people on a deathbed that their oral statement is, uh, is actionable, even though it's only oral. Um, so then why does it need to be piled up, even if it wasn't piled up? Um, even if it's not piled up, because we have a law, special law that the rabbis made, that someone who says something on 
on their deathbed, even their oral statement is considered as if it was a written statement that was delivered. Um, the reason the rabbis do that is because someone on his deathbed, oh, they're thinking about all kinds of things that they have to do before I die, and we want the person to be, his mind to be at rest, that he took care of all his, his needs, he, um, he set his affairs in order before he died. And so, we know that he means it because he's on his deathbed, so we take those words very seriously. We treat them as if they were written. And if they're written, so then, then um, if they were written, then yes, you can you can execute it. It's like it's already executed. Um, so, but then it doesn't need to be uh, um, piled up, even if it was um, just you know get find some money in the house somewhere in the bank, um, and they would find money and give it. So, in what case was Rav talking about that it would make a distinction that yeah, only if it's piled in the corner, then you give it, but otherwise not. And so we're going to have two answers to this. Amar Rav Zavid, Le'olam Bebari, it is in fact talking about a healthy person. Ukht Rav Huna Amar Rav, De'amar Rav Huna Amar Rav, and I'm using another statement of Rav in order to explain what the first statement of Rav meant. Here's the second statement of Rav. Maneli biadcha, tenehu lo lifloni, be'amamad shiloshtan kanad. Rav said that, let's say I have a hundred dollars and I deposited it with you. So hold on to this money, just watch it for me. And then I come to you later and I say, listen, I have my uh, plumber here, right? And I owe him a hundred dollars. So you know what? You're holding a hundred dollars for me. Um, instead of giving it to me, just give it to the plumber. And let's say all three of us are present, right? I'm here, the plumber is here, you're here, and I say, okay, you're going to give this to the money, the plumber, you're going to receive that, so you'll be paid, and everybody understands that. Um, if you do that, all three are there, Kana, the acquisition goes through, even if the plumber doesn't actually pick up the money yet, or there's no physical transfer, just by saying those words orally in front of those three people, remember, this is going to be called it's going to come up uh, again and again, um, and that is an acquisition, and it's as if the money is already transferred, uh, so that the plumber, could, I could tell him, you're already paid, right? That he's just holding your money for you. It transfers just by talking. Instead of holding my money, now you're holding the plumber's money. And so, that Rav Zavid says, that's what we're talking about here in the Mishnah. And that's what Rav was commenting on. In the Mishnah said, an oral statement by a healthy person. That works. What do you mean? It's only an oral statement. Oh, and I've said that's if it's piled up. What does he mean when he said piled in the corner? He means it's talking about specific money that's being held by a third party. And I say in front of all three people, that money I want you to give to him. So that's how it works. That's what the Mishnah is talking about. Okay. Rapapa says, no, actually, I think that the Mishnah, Rav, was interpreting the Mishnah to be talking about someone on his deathbed. And I also am interpreting the first statement of Rav with a different statement that Rav also says. So now there's a third statement that our Papa is referring to. Rav said that someone on his deathbed said, give this $100 to that person. 
If he said, depends how we how we refer to it. If he said this hundred hundred dinar, and he's pointing to some hundred dinar over there in the corner, then you should give it. But if he just said give a hundred dinar, you find it from among my property, um, then we do not give it because we worry. Maybe he didn't mean any hundred any hundred dinar in my property. Maybe he was thinking about that hundred dinar that is buried over there in the uh, under the tree in the backyard. He's thinking about a specific hundred dinar, but we don't know about that buried treasure. And uh, so therefore, um, we can't just go and take any other money and give it to that third party because we maybe he was referring to something specific that we don't know about. If on the other end he said this hundred dinar right here um, on and that in that corner, then we know he was referring to that and you can give it. So even for a shribera, even though we treat it like a written document, and yet we're going to go ahead with it, he gave us the right to do so. But it has to be clear that he means a particular amount of money and, um, and which particular amount of money it is. If he leaves it open, then maybe he doesn't, he, maybe he wants a particular type of money that we don't know about. And that's why you don't give it. And that explains why that I've said about our Mishnah, when a Shechib Merah says, here, take this money, we give it. That's only if it's specific money that we see here. Um, whereas if it's a nuts, where if it's, if it's not a specific pile of money that is in front of us, then we do not give it. So those are two interpretations. Now, in the bottom line is the halacha. We do not worry about that he's had in mind while he was dying that that particular treasure that's buried there. That's an unusual case. We don't have to worry about that. And therefore, uh, halacha is not like Rav Papa. We ask, Rav Papa, Sint Papa has such a, assumed such a far fetched situation. Um, why didn't Papa simply agree with Rav Zvid's uh, answer that's talking about a live person, uh, a well, a person who's well, and it was in Bemamad uh, Sheloshtan. And the answer is because Rav Papa thought. Um, that when um, Rav said that the Ma'amad Sheloshtan, um, when he said the Ma'amad Sheloshtan law, he meant that that works both if it's a milve, if it's a loan, or if it's a deposit. You see, Rav Zavid was assuming that there is a distinction between the two. Why would there be a distinction for the Ma'amad Shalosha case? Well, if it's a deposit that you're holding for me, so here's the money right there. It's really mine, but you're holding it for me. So then I have a right to say, listen, instead of giving it to me, give it to him. And so just saying that transfers the ownership of this here and everybody's there present and they're all okay with it. So then you can do that transfer orally. However, if it's a loan, so I, I gave you $100, uh, for you to borrow while during while you have it while you're borrowing it it's yours to use as you please right it's just that you owe me at some future date uh, the money so there it's harder to say that it will transfer because I say listen when you pay me back right don't pay me back pay him back but that's there's nothing there there's no physical thing item to be paid back. So it's harder to make a transfer when there's no physical item there. And that's why Rav Zavid um, would, say, would, would explain the Mishnah in, as follows, that uh, when Rav said that the Mishnah has to be piled up, he means if it's a pikadon, a deposit that is here, that we have, where, but not if it's just a loan. Rav Papa, on the other hand, 
he interpreted Rav's law regarding the Mamachi Loshtan as being applicable even for a loan. Yeah, even though a loan, the money isn't there, but it's, there's, an, uh, there's a debt obligation, and I can transfer the debt obligation even orally. Because of that, Rapapa could not say that when Rav said about the Mishnah, that the Mishnah's law is limited only to um, a piled money, that would not be true for Rapapa, because if it was Ma'amad Sheloshtan, then that would be true whether it's piled money, meaning like a deposit that's there, or if it was a loan. And therefore, he could not use, he could not interpret uh, Rav's explanation of the Mishnah as being Ma'amad Sheloshtan. That's why he had to say, he's talking about a Shechib now the other way around, Rav Zibid didn't say he's talking about someone on his deathbed, um, and um, uh, and uh, and it has to be that he's it's it's there. We we see the money. Otherwise, maybe he's referring to some money that's buried um, we don't know about. And the answer is No, he he said it's impossible to uh, interpret this Mishnah as referring to someone on his deathbed. Mimai, why why not? Rav Zavid, because of the resha of the Mishnah, which would have to be in the same case. And there it says, a person, if you say it's in, on his deathbed, says, give this get or this shikhrud um, avadim, um, and then he dies, you do not give it. Now, tamadimet. So it sounds like the only reason why you don't give is because now he's dead. There's no point in giving these things after he's dead. But if he were alive, then you would give it. And right in the Mishnah, the language of Mishnah says he says the words tenu. So it must be precise. We assume the language of the Mishnah is precise. And so you'd only give it on behalf of the um of the this husband or the master while he's alive only if he said the word tenu um and but and then if he died you wouldn't give it wait a second but someone on his deathbed we have another law that even if someone if someone on his deathbed says to write a get even if he doesn't say give the get we do give it. And here's the Mishnah, Ditnan. So someone is going out in a chain around his neck, meaning, we saw that a picture above, um, meaning he's on death row, and he's being taken out to be executed. And he says, someone, you, Write a get for my wife. All he says is write. He didn't say give it also. We understand what he means. He wants it to be written and given. And then you go ahead and you write it and you give it. Why would he want to do that? Because he'd rather his wife be a divorcee than be a widow that would help her, for example, if he has no children and he, she would have to do yibum. So if she's a widow, she doesn't have to do, deal with the yibum and maybe uh, the, the brother is annoying. So if he says that, we go ahead, we not only write it, we also give it. Um, and that was the original law. Then the rabbis expanded it and they said, even if someone is going to set sail on a faraway place or going on a caravan and is going in a faraway place, and these are, these are dangerous journeys, and you might not hear from the husband for a long time, and then you won't know, is he alive? Is he dead? Can I remarry? And um, so in order to make sure that the wife will not remain in Aguna, so as he's going off, he says, write my, tell someone, write a 
divorce document for my wife. Even if he doesn't say tenu, we know that he meant write it and give it, and then we give it on his behalf. And Rabbi Shimon Shizuri and added, even someone who is very, very ill on his deathbed. He says, just write it, then we write it and we give it. Um, so, what you see from here is that um, this, this, the Mishnah cannot be um, a case where he's on his deathbed, because if he's on his deathbed, then even if he just says, write it, then we continue and we write it and give it. Whereas according to the Mishnah, it says tenu. Only if you only if he says the word tenu do you actually give it to the uh, to her. Therefore, that has to the Mishnah must be talking about a case where he's healthy, and that therefore the um, uh, sefa of the money also has to be where he's healthy. And that's why Rav Zavid interpreted the Mishnah as referring to a case where he's healthy. All right, Matkif Rav Asher. Rav Asher challenges. Who said that the Mishnah has to follow the single opinion of Rabbi Shimon Shizuri, who says that someone on his deathbed who writes, who says, Kitvu, we also assume that means Tenu. Maybe not. Maybe he, maybe he follows the other rabbis, all the previous rabbis, who did not say that. That even someone on his deathbed has to say Tenu also in order for it to, to be given. And therefore, the Mishnah could very well be like Rav Papa, and uh, could be like someone on his deathbed. Okay, so now we understand uh, both interpretations. All right, since we brought up this topic, now Gufa, we're going to go further into this Ba'amad Sheloshtan law. Amarav huna amarav, maneli biyadcha tenehu lo lifloni be'amad Sheloshtan kana. Amarav amistabra miltadra pepikadon avaba milveh la. So Rav huna, instead of the name of Rav, that if I have money in your in your hands, um, and I, I tell you, please give it to my plumber, and where all three of us are there, then by just talking, by saying that, it's already acquired, right? And if you lose the uh, lose it, then um, it's going to be not my responsibility, right? It's the plumber's already. Okay, um, now that was the statement. Rava said about the statement, makes sense that that statement would be true only for a deposit. Because there, the money is there. You're holding it from me. It's right there. And so that's, I can easily, more easily transfer orally. I say, that deposit, listen, you're holding it from me? No, you're holding it for him instead. Um, whereas if it's a loan, so a loan doesn't exist. I gave you money. You went and spent it. You have it. It's yours to use as you wish until you pay it back. So it doesn't actually exist. So how can I um, cause that to transfer over to someone else just by words? So Rava says, that's the interpretation that would make sense to me, logically. But then Rava adds, But Rava says, I actually heard Rav say, clarifying his statement, and he says, he's swearing that he's heard this, that Rav said, this ma'amad shiloshtan, Law applies even with a loan, right? So Rava is just exclaiming, makes sense to me, I understand the mechanism regarding a pikadon. But the truth is, he said it regarding Emilveh also. Um, and that's what Rav Papa reported as well. Rav Papa was Rava's student, in fact. Um, so just earlier, Rav Papa said he thinks Rav applies it to both cases. Okay. And we have yet another statement by Shemuel in the name of Levi, Shemuel Rav's colleague. And where, if I say, oh, you have a loan that you have to, that you owe to me, um, outside 
outstanding loan. You know what? Don't pay me back. Pay my, pay my plumber back. And all three of us are there. Then that works. So we see now both uh, Rav and Shemuel, name of Levi, agree that it works with, even with a loan. So we're going to have to analyze by what mechanism can I transfer a loan just by words? Oh, Amemad explains that um, the, when the borrower says to the lender, at the time of giving the money, uh, the borrower receives the loan, the borrower says, listen, I'm beholden to you, I'm going to have to pay you back, but it's a, if, whether he says it explicitly or not, it's as if he's saying, I will pay you back or anyone who comes on your authority right, for you to collect the loan. And then I'll pay that person back. So at the very time of the loan, when he's even acquiring it, he already makes himself obligated either to the original lender or to anyone who the lender transfers the loan to. It's kind of like nowadays, if I get a mortgage from uh, uh, Chase Bank, right? At any point, Chase can sell my mortgage to Wells Fargo. And then instead of paying Chase, I have to pay my mortgage to Wells Fargo. They can transfer it again and pay and send, send it to someone else, right? And they tell you up front, listen, we may not be servicing this mortgage forever. We might, and then we might uh, sell it. And then you have to deal with someone else. So uh, the every borrower agrees at the time of the loan and Therefore, at the time of the loan here, the money's here. So, yes, he's taking upon himself the obligation to pay either me or whoever I decide you should pay. And that's how it works. So, Rav Ashe challenges Amemad. Wait, your mechanism works if, you know, the, the plumber is alive at the time of the loan. But what if? Right after uh, I, I give you a long-term loan, right, and after twenty years, um, I come and say, "Hey, listen, don't pay me. Pay this uh, bar mitzvah kid." Now, this bar mitzvah kid was—I um, uh, want to give him a, a gift. This bar mitzvah kid was not alive at the time of the loan. So, when you took the loan, there's no way you could have said, "I will pay back you or any anyone who uh, uh, who you want me to." But that person didn't yet was not yet alive. So, you can't make yourself obligated to a person who's not yet alive. Because even according to the Bimeir, who says a person can transfer an item that is not yet in the world. I can sell you futures, right? You want to buy my my uh, what's going to grow on my tree next year. Even according to the Bimeir, who says, yes, we can make a transaction for merchandise that doesn't exist in the world. Even he would agree... Um, uh, that that's only if I'm selling it to a person who's actually here. We're both here. I can sell you merchandise that is, doesn't exist yet. But even he would say, I cannot sell something to a person who does not yet alive, right? I'm going to sell your the child that you will have next year. I'm, uh, I'm going to sell him something. No, you can't do that. And so too, there's no way for this loan to be transferred to a person. So according to you, I can only transfer a loan to someone who was alive at the time of the loan, but not to someone who will be born after, right? We never, we don't, we don't see any distinction like that. So let's find a different mechanism. Here's the mechanism for that benefit that the borrower receives 
for have from replacing an old debt to a new debt, he says, I will pledge myself. In other words, from the borrower's perspective, he has this loan out from me for you know a year or two. And he keeps pushing it off. He says, I'll pay you next month. I'll pay you next week. Right? And I'm getting upset with him because I want him to pay back. And now I say, listen, don't pay me. Pay the plumber. So now the borrower says, oh, great. He listen, I need more time anyway. And I'm just starting a new relationship with the plumber. So now I'll be able to extend time. I'll tell the plumber, listen, I just need a month. And he can start the process all over again. So the borrower would be happy to obligate himself. And the borrower, he has, he, anyone can just obligate themselves, right? Um, and that's the legal mechanism. I'm not forcing him to. He is agreeing to it because it's beneficial to the borrower to 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 have a new obligation it's like refinancing right and you get a better deal says hold on if you're going to use that mechanism that you'd rather have a new loan, right? They ask Rav what about a case of these children of Bar El Yashiv? This was a group of thugs, a, a mafia group. And anyone that owed them money, they'd go and tie the person up um, and uh, and take their money. Um, right? They're not waiting at all. Right? They're used there. They're going to uh, uh, take, get, they're going to get their money immediately. And so in that case, I say, oh, listen, oh, you owe me a hundred dollars. You know what? Don't pay me. Pay, pay Mr. Uh, Bar El Yashiv. And the borrower would be, in that case would be like, no, 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 I don't want to pay Bar El Yashiv. He's going to come over. He's going to you know, crack my uh, uh, kneecaps. And, um, you know, in that case, he would not want, he would not agree to, to make himself obligated to that Bar El Yashiv. And so what Rav Asher is going to say, in that case, the Mamad Shaloshtan um, uh, rule doesn't work. Rav never made such a distinction. And if you say, yes, in fact, that there is, a, there is a, such a distinction. Mamach Toshim will only work in cases where the borrower would be happy to get a new lender, um, but in cases where it's um, being uh, transferred over to Luka Brodsky, then he would not want to um, transfer his loan, and then it wouldn't work. Uh, but then you're making your words um, based on circumstance. And the rabbis, whenever they make a rule, right, you say you make a rule across the board. You can't say, oh, you have to, you don't have to, right? You have to, once you make a rule, it has to apply evenly because you can't you can't make a legal system where oh it's going to apply in this case but not in that case that would be confusing um Ella, so we abandon that and now we have a new mechanism for how ma'amad shaloshan can work in the case of a loan mozutra says this is one of three things that the rabbis instituted and they didn't give a reason they didn't give an explanation they just said this is the way it is um, and this is one of them, right? It's kind of like a Hilchata, kind of like a Halacha Mishim Sinai. It's just that's the law and stop asking questions about it. Um, in fact, I mean, it could be through one of the mechanisms we said before, but then the rabbi said, listen, we're going to make it happen even where the mechanism doesn't apply because uh, they have the right to do that. So they're just making a rule across the board. It's very convenient. It's good for the economy to be able to, it's like a third party check. Uh, for be able to uh, for people to be able to transfer uh, loans to someone else, and so the rabbi just said, "Listen, it works. 
and stop asking questions about the mechanism. And what are the other two? If a husband, before he dies, he writes a will and says, listen, when I die, I want all my, my assets to go to my wife. Um, which is the modern law today that when someone dies, uh, everything goes to his wife. Um, but in halacha, it's supposed to go to, to his children. Uh, that's the Torah law of uh, inherit, in, inheriting. So let's say his kids are, let's say he has small kids. So what are the small kids? They're not going to run the farm. So he says, I'm going to, I want my wife to own everything. Well, the rabbis say, we don't follow his word to the letter. Rather, we make her only a steward that she just takes care of the, um, the estate. Like a court, a court appointed, um, uh, a potropos steward might might uh, take care of it until they're grown, and then when the kids are grown, then they take over ownership. And so we uh, we say that sorry, a husband, when even though you wrote that I'm going to give everything, all my property to my wife, and she should own it, we don't follow that through, and we actually give it to the kids once they're older. Um, and the third rule that the rabbi said, just declared, even though there's no legal me- what's the legal mechanism? If the uh, when the the guy died, husband died, he said, "I want to go to my wife." What's the legal mechanism for the rabbis to say, "No, she's only a steward; it goes to the sons." Right? There's no legal mechanism, but that's the rule. That's the way they, that the, the rabbis thought it should be. And the third one is when a man, when a father uh, marries off his oldest son to a wife um, a, in a house, um, the uh, the son acquires that house. Um, so uh, uh, so uh, they would do this. Um, they, you know, they wouldn't get married in a, in a hall. Um, they would get, have, get a house. And so presumably it's not the house that the father himself is living in, right? That he, you know, he's he, uh, nice enough to host, a, host the wedding. And then, you know, the, after the wedding says, okay, dad, bye. Now, we're talking about most of the commentaries explain a house that was built for the purpose of the wedding or acquire bought for the purpose of the wedding they have the wedding there and even though the father never transferred money transferred a deed and the son never paid for the house this is the rabbi say this is the assumption right you made the house for the wedding and this is your oldest son the son gets to keep the house um, I mean you can understand this today there are some people that spend the amount of money on a wedding that would be equivalent that you could buy a house with it um, and so so too then that's the idea I'm making a wedding for you I'm setting you up not just making a party I'm setting you up so that you have a home that you can um, that you can live in and so this is a uh, this is a legal acquisition even though uh, they don't go through the normal legal mechanisms. And this is the third halakha that the rabbis established, even without giving an explanation for the legal mechanism. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen v'amen.